Father, we are opening up your word and about to do something that human beings don't have the capacity in themselves to do, and that is not only understand, but fall in love with what your word says. We are in full dependence upon your spirit to make your eternal um, truth real in our hearts. So I pray that you do that today, that you would give us the wisdom it's trying to impart, and that you would build up your church in the foundation of your word, clarified by the work of your spirit and um, found upon the grace of your son who died on the cross so that we may now boldly approach you as we enter into your word. Thank you, Father, for who you are. May you be pleased um, by what we offer to you today, and may you be kind so that we may understand and know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, if you've been with us for the past two weeks, then you would know that we just got done uh, preaching on a series through the book of Luke, the first two chapters of the book of Luke. Now we're going to put a pause on that series. We'll revisit it again uh, in the future, but the plan has always been that for the start of 2024, we wanted to revisit a wisdom literature in the Bible. Okay? We've done Ecclesiastes in the past, and now we're going to do the first section of the book of Proverbs, which is chapters 1 to 9. That's going to be our new series moving on, and we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Luke as well in the future in between. Okay? But why do we want to keep revisiting wisdom literature um, throughout the years? Because the Bible says that wisdom is a really important thing to have. You should want it more than silver and gold, Proverbs chapter 3 says. In fact, it's so important that it's the only thing in the whole Bible that God says, if you pray for it, he will 100% guarantee that you'll get it. It's the only thing. Nothing else in the Bible he promises in that way. He doesn't promise money that way. He doesn't promise health that way. He doesn't promise uh, career advancement that way, love that way. But for wisdom, there's an explicit verse, James chapter 1, verse 5. Go check it out where God says, if you pray for it, he'll give it to you. <laughs> it's that important. But what is it? What is, what is wisdom? Well, Solomon, throughout the book of Proverbs, he describes it in many ways. At times, he describes it as a type of skill. Other times, he describes it as a sort of virtue, like hard work, you know, is, is wise. Sometimes, he describes it as a moral act, like it's wise to be patient, okay? But here, here's the main point, I think, of our passage today. The skillful, hardworking, ethical man or woman is wise, sure. They are all those things. They are, they are hardworking, skillful, ethical. But here's the key. They're all those things because they're living in line with reality and not against it. I'll explain later. But the reason why there are all of these things is because they're living in line with reality, not against it. What do I mean? Think about, for example, a wise sailor who patiently waits for a storm to pass before he sails his boat out to sea. Now, is he a patient man? Well, obviously, yes. He 
show the virtue of patience by waiting for the storm to pass, right? But his patience was birthed due to a knowledge of how the world really works. In other words, that if he goes out to sea at this time, he's going to die. That's the reality of the situation. So because of that, he is patient, you see? His patience is a result of submitting to how the world really works. Or another example, when an architect meticulously calculates, rechecks the math behind her building design. Why does, she, why does she do that? Because she's hardworking, sure, but she's hardworking mainly because she's not wanting to go against reality. What reality? The reality that if there's a flaw in her calculations, gravity is going to pull the whole structure down and people will get hurt. You see? So she works hard, not just to work hard, but she works hard because she's working with and not against reality. Okay. An Old Testament scholar put it this way. He says that wisdom helps you by making you competent with how life really works. Wisdom helps you by making you competent with how life really works. So the question that this passage is asking us today is this. One, are you in touch with reality? Are you in touch with reality? And two, are you working with it instead of against it? 2024 is right around the corner, and every single one of us will be faced once again with big decisions and some, cro some crossroads, maybe bigger than others, maybe life-changing. Are we wise? Are we making decisions based on reality or not? That's what our passage is trying to help us with today, okay? So let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thus says the Lord. If you want to be wise, if you want to know, live in, and work with reality, then our passage says you need at least four things. At least four things. One, you need to have the right kind of narrator above you. Two, you need to have the right kind of people around you. Three, you need to have the right kind of shrewdness about you. And four, you need to have the right kind of fear within you. Okay? Let me break that down. Let's, let's start with the first point. If you want to know, if you want to live in reality, you've got to have the right narrator above you. Your life narrator is the biggest factor that will determine your view of reality. It just is. What do I mean? Let's try a quick exercise. Okay? Never done this before, but I think this will help us understand verse 1 better, all right? If I told you that last year, a group of military men dressed in full uniform came to our church building during a worship service, which really happened, by the way, a group of military men in full uniform came to our service, sat up, up front there, 
And then I ask you, make sense of that event. Like, tell me what happened. Tell me the story behind it. Why did they come? You know, I'd be willing to bet that we would have more than one version of the answer, right? From everyone here. Why? Because all of you are mini-narrators, so to speak. You're all min we're all mini-narrators. So let's give it a try, okay? I'm going to give you four possible versions of what happened, and you tell me which one you think is true. All right? Don't raise your hand right away. I'll, I'll repeat it again later. Here are the four versions. A, they came uh, to check on the church to see whether or not there were political sentiments being promoted here because perhaps of the political atmosphere surrounding it. That's A. B, they actually wanted to go to the church downstairs on third floor, but then they got lost. So they came up here. That's B. C, they're on duty from out of Java, and because they're Christians, uh, the commander allowed them to kind of go and worship at wherever they wanted to go. Or D, there's a whole other story that wasn't mentioned in the above. Okay? Which of you here think it's Raise your hands. It's A, because they came to check whether or not there's political sentiments kind of around the church. I just want to see, raise your hand high. Okay, 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 all right. Which one of you thinks it's B? They're actually trying to go to the church downstairs, but they got lost and they, they ended up here anyways. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. Which one of you think it's C? Okay, uh, that they're just from out of Java and they're allowed to go worship on Sunday by their commander. Raise of hands. Okay, all right. Which one of you think it's D, that I'm fooling all of you and that there's something I haven't said that's actually the story? Wow, you guys are suspicious of me. This is, <laughs> okay. You see the point? Same exact event, right? You all have the same data, but different realities. Why? different narrators. Your narrator is the one that makes sense of it all. By the way, you want to know which one was true? It was B. They're going to go to the church downstairs, but they ended up here <laughs> and have to endure us for an hour and a half. I'm glad they came. Um, okay, how does this help us understand verse 1 better? Because this is what verse 1 is about. Verse 1 says this. This is the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That's the key. King of Israel. Now, side note, when the Bible says Israel, we know that it's not ultimately referring to a particular nation or biological people group, but it's referring to everyone and anyone who reveres the Lord, anyone and everyone who has a personal relationship with the God of the Bible, because even in the Bible, biological Israelites would often be the ones who reject God when non-Israelites receive him. You don't know which one's gonna do what, okay? The ultimate reference here is to a people who assume that God is, the God of the Bible is king, he's true, or in other words, the assumption that Solomon has here is that he's speaking to anyone and everyone who assumes that the God of the Bible is the true narrator of the universe. That's his assumption, okay? So what Solomon's trying to do here in verse one by opening like this, he's saying this, Look, this whole, this whole book assumes that you believe the God of the Bible is king. The God of the Bible is the true narrator of life. Because this is the most important factor that will determine what you would feel like is wise or foolish. You're a narrator. 
He's more important in determining what's wise and foolish in your heart than this, than this book, than these Proverbs. Here's another example that might help. Let's say, for example, financial success is your narrator. Financial success um, is what you think about the most, is what you seek the most. It's the lenses you view all of life through. Okay, that's your narrator. But now let's say my narrator in life is peace of mind. Unlike you, I just want a stress-free life. That's what I think about the most. Those are the lenses I view life through. That's what I seek. Now, let's say that we both are presented with the same investment opportunities. Okay? Five investments are high risk, high return. Five investments are low risk, low return. All right? Based on your narrator, which is what? Financial success. What would you say would be the wise thing to do here? The five high risk, or at least you'd be much more open to that. You see, then say, I would be. Why? Because my narrator is not financial success. My narrator is a stress-free life. So I may choose these five low risk, low return, or I may not invest at all because that's just too stressful. You see? Our judgments of what seems wise and foolish depends mainly on the narrator that we're consulting more than the data itself. Same data, yet different decisions because of different narrators. What Solomon's saying here, if the God of the Bible isn't the one that's making sense of your reality, if the God of the Bible isn't the one that's determining what's wise and foolish for you, you can read this book all you want. It's not going to make you wise. Because unless the one who made this world becomes your compass for this world, you'll get lost for sure. And look, you might have a lot of money you might have the fanciest ship in the world. But if your compass is broken, you'll still be dumbfounded at sea. You need the right compass. To be wise, God, not yourself, must be your narrator. You must look up, not inward, not just inward, I would say. Upward, not just inward. Also, you gotta look outward, which leads us to our second point. You've got to have the right kind of people around you. Okay, let's move on to verse 2. Solomon here begins by assuming the existence of a good community around you. You want to be wise, you've got to have a good community around you. Where does he assume that? Let's read verse 2 again. To know wisdom, Solomon says, and what? Instruction. In order to be wise, therefore, you need an instructor. <laughs> Now, the Hebrew word for instructor there is musar. And the word musar throughout the book of Proverbs can refer to four different things, okay? The word musar has been referred to parents. The word musar has been referred to teachers. It's also been referred to God. It's also been used to refer to life events, like things that happen in your life can also be a teacher, right? It can also be a musar in your life. But if you look at the rest of verse 2, the Musars that Solomon specifically had in mind here are the ones who can help you understand what? Words of insight, he says. Words. 
That's the second part of verse two. Words here assuming language, sentences, words that you can either read or hear, okay? So as good of a Musar life events can be, the specific teachers or Musars Solomon has had in mind here were most likely the first three on that list, which are parents and or teachers in life who are helping explain to you God's word. Okay, that's a specific Musar or teacher Solomon had in mind. So l- let's connect this with point one. If you want to be in touch with reality, okay, to be wise, you've got to be in touch with reality. If you want to be in touch with reality by having the God of the Bible as your narrator, if you want that, then you need Musars, you need teachers, guides, to help you understand his word or the Bible. Simple enough, but the question begs, why do we need a teacher to help us understand the Bible? Why can't we just read it by ourselves and kind of glean wisdom out of it? Because, and if you've read the Bible for yourself, you probably sense this too, because although the Bible is always sufficient, it's not always specific. Although the Bible is always sufficient, it's not always specific. What do I mean? For example, the Bible says, look, here's your problem. You want to know what your problem is? You're an angry person. You're an angry person. That's your problem. And you go, you are so right. That I'm an angry person. That is my problem. Or I guess a more realistic reaction in this case would be, what did you call me? <laughs> you know, angry people would say that. You're an angry person. And then the Bible goes, you know what you need to be? You need to be a forgiving person. You need to be a kind person. You need to forgive 70 times seven. And you go, I, yes, completely agree. That's what I need to be. I need to be less angry and I need to be more forgiving. And then the Bible goes, okay. And you go, okay, like what's next? Okay, how do, what do I do? How do I get from A to B? What are the details? What are the specifics? It doesn't give you specifics. It doesn't give you specifics in how you grow. It also doesn't give you specifics in your life choices. Uh, For example, you know, you can uh, be presented with two different job options or two different people to date or marry. And after reading the Bible up and down, the whole book, you have found that both are fine. (laughs) Biblically, both jobs are great and both people are great. Both jobs are legal. Both people are born again Christians. So biblically, you can go either way. But yet, reality is, one choice could still make your life a lot more miserable than the other. How do you know which one's which? Who's gonna help you get from A to B? Who's gonna help you navigate through the gray? Your musars, your teachers, that's their job, Solomon's saying. Parents, teachers, Bible study leaders, community group leaders, elders, pastors, or maybe just a good friend who loves you and knows you, but who's also probably a bit further along in the faith than you. You gotta consult them, okay? Because although the Bible's sufficient, it's not always clear. But can you really trust these Musars to help you in these big decisions, right? How can I know that their counsel is wise? Because even the best teachers in life are still sinful, flawed people. Yes, that's true. Which is why Solomon continues here in verse three, by saying that here's how you can tell whether or not a Musar's, a teacher's counsel is wise. Okay, look at the end of verse three. You, you can know that a teacher's counsel is wise 
if it prioritizes three things, what are they? Righteousness, justice, and equity above all else. That's the three things in the end of verse three. If a Musar gives you a suggestion, if a teacher, if a Bible study leader, if a pastor gives you a suggestion, and it does not prioritize righteousness, justice, and equity, meaning it somehow makes you sacrifice what is morally right before God's eyes, uh, it somehow makes you sacrifice justice, and it somehow makes you unfairly disadvantage other people, then their suggestion is foolish. Their, their wisdom is not wise at all. So if his or her suggestion gets you money, for example, but sacrifices what's right, if it gets you votes, but sacrifices justice, if it gets you ahead in your career, but it illegally or unfairly disadvantages other people, then Solomon says, that's foolish counsel. Don't listen to him, because true wisdom always befriends those three things. Okay. And by the way, it's interesting to see here, isn't it, that righteousness, justice, and equity are all virtues that benefit your community, not just you. So in a sense, wisdom here is something given by God to be passed down in a community for the sake of the community. That's what wisdom is, okay? Do you have a community like that? Are you in a community like that? To have musars and teachers like that? You need it desperately. Why? Because if you don't, you won't possess the kind of prudence or shrewdness that you need in order to be wise. Third point. You not only need the right narrator above you, the right people around you, you also need the right kind of shrewdness, prudence about you. Okay? Let's continue to verse 4. So in verse 4, Solomon moves away from talking about the Musar and the teacher, and he's talking more to the student here at this point. What he's saying is this. If the people in your community are doing all this well, right, in verse 4, if there are Musars that will teach you, here's what it will give you. It will give, give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Prudence to the simple. Now, the word prudent here, this is, I think, important. This is probably the main thing of the whole passage, maybe. The word prudent here means more than just being smart, it means more than just being intelligent. Prudence here have more of an aggressive kind of feel to it. It can be translated to shrewdness or even cunning. You know, when you're being cunning, that's kind of the, more, the feel here. So a community, like in verses 2 or 3, who have good musars in them, will give skills of shrewdness, skills of cunning to the simple in that community. Who are the simple? The simple are people who are easily convinced, people who are gullible, People who just kind of say, oh, I agree with that, you see. So if I could reword this sentence in a way that I feel like it's more um, acute to its original feel, the job of Musars in a community is to impart skills of shrewdness, skills of cunning, so that people in that community won't be gullible, so that people in that community won't be so easily convinced. Easily convinced of what? of other narrators out there who isn't God. See, this is the difference. This is different than just telling people what to do. I think most teachers, most perhaps uh, Bible study leaders, parents even, I, I do this sometimes, pastors, we're not interested in making our students or our children more cunning or prudent. 
we're, we're satisfied with simply telling them what to do or what not to do. You see? Um, and that might produce quicker results, but it won't make them wise. The Musar's job is to do more than just say, do this or do that, or don't do this or don't do that. Their job is to make the student question why it is they wanted to do it in the first place. Like, what, what was going on? Who was narrating their life when they made that foolish decision? Whose voice were they hearing the most when they made that call? What compass were they using that led them to this direction? The ability to go beyond the bad decision and identify the broken compass is what prudence means. People who are prudent and shrewd seek not only to fix the decision of their hands, but also the compass of their heart. You see the difference? Are you just smart or are you wise? Are you prudent? You know what would be an interesting exercise for us all? I'm not going to make you do this. At the take-home question later, I will. But for us, um, to look at the top five foolish mistakes we did in 2023. Think of two right now, maybe. Okay. Most foolish mistakes you did. And not just ask, what could I have done differently? But also ask, whose voice narrated reality for me at that moment? Whose voice narrated what's real? What compass was I using at that moment? Be interesting. That's what the Musar's job in the community is to do. We're called to change not just the mind and the behavior, but the compass of the heart, which is why, in verse 6, the Musar must use Proverbs, sayings, and riddles, Solomon says. Okay, stick with me. I know we've covered a lot of ground, and I'm going to summarize everything later. Okay, so it's okay if it feels a bit messy right now, but for now, just kind of stick with me here. The Musa has to use Proverbs, poetry, you know, riddles, sayings in verse 6. Why is that? Because, think about it. Think about those top two foolish decisions, or top five foolish decisions that you made, whatever, right? Think about all the times that you've made a foolish call in your life. Were they really head issues? Like, were there really, you know, did you not know it was foolish? Maybe like 10% of the time you didn't know it was foolish. But if you're honest, 90% of the time, you kind of knew that it was dumb. <laughs> right? You kind of knew that it was foolish. Your head warned you, you knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it anyways. Why is it? Why do people have one too many drinks? Why do people make bad romantic decisions and mistakes? Why do people steal and cheat to advance their professional career? Why do people plagiarize? Why do people commit corruption? Because they didn't know there were foolish things to do? Of course they knew. They knew. But they did it anyways. Why? Because their desire in here for it was greater than their reason against it. You made that foolish call because you wanted it in here, not because you knew it was good up here. You know what this means? This means that how we choose our compasses, 
how we choose our narrators have more to do with our hearts than with our head. How you choose the voice that dictates reality in your life, how you choose the compass that you're going to follow, that, that's, that's a heart battle. It's not just a head issue. So, in order to make God's Word, the Bible, your compass, your narrator, the Musar must make God's Word not just sound reasonable to your head, but also beautiful to your heart. And how do they do that? Just by simply reciting it to you in sentence form? In quick propositions? No. They do it to you in giving it in proverbial form, in poetic form, like the book we're studying now. That's why I think Solomon here chose to write a book about wisdom in proverbial or poetic form, because he knows that straightforward sentences, as beneficial as they are, like the one we just read in our statement of faith, that's just a sentence. As good as they are, it's only going to make our hearts see how reasonable God's word is. But in order to make our hearts see its beauty, he needs to borrow a light that only poetry's flame can give. You gotta know how your soul works, Solomon's saying here, okay? You don't choose compasses only because your head's convinced. You choose a compass because your heart is engaged. So, application, let's bring this down to application. Expose yourself, therefore, to sermons from preachers and podcasts from hosts and books and articles from authors. Words, right? Verse 2 says, language. Expose yourself to words that are both accurate in doctrine and beautiful in exposition. Expose yourself to as much of that as you can. That's how you end up not just being smart, but wise. That's how you end up not just being intelligent, but prudent. That's how you can fix not only the decisions of your hands, but the compass of your heart. You gotta, you gotta read, side note, wanting to grow in wisdom without reading is like trying to get muscle without working out. Just can't do it. Expose yourself to words of wisdom that are theologically accurate and beautiful as well. That engages your heart, okay? And by the way, if you want suggestions of the kind of books that fall into that category, come up to me after the service. Maybe I can have some suggestions for you, okay? All right. We covered a lot. Let me just summarize before we go to our last point. Here's what Solomon said thus far. If you want to be wise... You can only do so if you're in touch with reality. That's point one. If you have the words of him who created the world as the one that directs how you navigate in the world. Okay? In touch with reality. Two, the God of the Bible, the one who created the world, can be your life's narrator only if you have good musars, good teachers, instructing your community in his word. Three, the point we just talked about, the way you can tell that a Musar in your community has done their job well 
here it is, is that every time someone in your community does something foolish, this is the KPI. You can know that a Musar has done their job well. If someone in the community does something foolish, that person will be able to not just fix their actions, but in prudence, they'll also be able to fix the broken compass of the heart. They'd be aware, oh, I was listening to anxiety more than God's word at that moment. That's why I made that foolish call. Oh, I was listening to envy, to money, to comfort, whatever else have you, more than God's word in that moment. Those are my compasses. That's why it led me here. The, the simple will be able to do that internal work and talk to themselves. Okay, they'd be able to go beyond just the action and repent deeper in the heart. But Solomon ends here in verse seven. Unfortunately, despite the Musar's best effort, sometimes, theologically pretty sermons and books still might not make the people in a community wise. It might not. Why not? This is why Solomon closes this section in this way, I believe. Solomon closes with the claim that the beginning, of not, the beginning of wisdom is not having a good musar. Read verse seven again. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is having the right relationship with the Lord, or as Solomon puts it, fear of the Lord. Let's go to our last point. To be wise, you've got to have the right narrative above you, the right uh, people around you, um, the right prudence about you, and lastly, the right kind of fear within you, okay? Let me attempt to explain this. Have you ever heard beautiful words coming out of the mouth of someone you don't trust? It's like no matter how beautiful they are, they just for some reason didn't sound beautiful to you, did they? They sound what? Manipulative. Or have you ever heard a very beautiful, well-constructed argument come out of the mouth of a corrupt politician? And if you're honest, if you take the words in itself objectively, it's so beautiful. But for some reason, in your ears, they didn't sound beautiful, they sounded icky. You know, sleazy, ugh. You know what that is? Because at the end of the day, how beautiful or true words are to you depend more on the relationship you have with the person saying it than the actual words itself. It depends more with how you view the person. And that's true with God too, isn't it? Sometimes, the beauty of the Bible the beauty of the scripture, the beauty of God's word can actually sound manipulative and icky to you. Why? Not because you have issues with the words themselves, but because you have an issue with God. Maybe at that season, God's letting something really bad happen in your life and you don't understand why. Maybe in that season, you've been praying for something and over and over and over again, doing all the right things, but for some reason, God didn't answer the prayer. And you just not, you find yourself not in good terms with God. So anything he says, no matter how beautiful it is, just sounds annoying, icky, 
and manipulative. And if you're in that season, you can be hearing and reading the most theologically beautiful sermons and books from a hundred different musars. But if you're not in good terms with God, your heart will never be convinced that His Word is the life compass, is the narrator that you should be listening to. You just, it won't happen. Wisdom then, as an Old Testament commentator described, wisdom then, in its full sense, is a relationship. Wisdom, in its full sense, is a relationship. You gotta have the right kind of relationship with God. What kind of relationship in that? One where you fear Him. Solomon says in verse seven. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't sound like a trustworthy relationship. Well, fear here isn't a negative kind of fear, like you're scared he's gonna hurt you or something. No, no, no. It's a positive fear. You're not afraid he's gonna hurt you, but rather you're afraid of hurting him. Here's a helpful analogy I once heard, okay? Imagine if I suddenly hand you a 10,000-year-old uh, precious Greek vase, and it's in your hands all of a sudden. How would you feel while you're holding it? Probably a little afraid, right? Why? Not because you're scared the vase is going to hurt you, but you're scared that you might hurt it. Or, you know, when you meet an artist or a uh, musician or an athlete or somebody that you've really looked up to for all your life, and then finally this person strikes a conversation with you, and what do you feel? you feel a little bit scared. Why is that? Not because you think the artist is gonna hurt you, but because you don't wanna offend them. You see? That's a positive kind of fear. That's what Solomon is saying here, that in order for our hearts to be convinced that God's word is the compass to be best used for our life, then the most important ingredient for that is that we must have a positive fear toward God. You must, you must think of him and, and love and revere him so much to where you don't want to hurt or offend him. If you don't have that, you're not going to view his word as the compass. But how, let's end here, how can you get that? How can you be in the spot where you have a positive fear relationship with the Lord? Because if we're honest, most of the times when we think of God, what do we feel, positive fear or negative fear? <laughs> Probably negative fear, Right? Why? Because deep inside you know that he's the true narrator that you've ignored your whole life. He's the compass you've thrown a long time ago. He's the one whose existence reveal our foolishness for what it is. Not just foolishness, but an eternal offense against the creator of the universe. What did David say in the Psalms? Not to me alone have I committed foolishness. That's not what he said. Remember what he said? To you alone have I sinned. So, you know, how in the world can we look at this God, can we look at this being, and have a positive fear instead of a negative fear? This is so interesting, and I'm so glad I saw it. I think the answer, one of the best ways to get to the answer, you can find from another wisdom book, the Psalms. The Psalms give us an answer. Let me read Psalm 130, verse four for you. 
the psalmist says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities or sin, if you, O Lord, should mark sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you, if you hold my sin against me, no one, no one can stand. But if we see forgiveness from you, you will be feared. We can only develop a positive fear toward God when we see him, the psalmist says, forgive what? Our sins. Our iniquities. And I hope you see where this is going. Where do we see that happen, friends? Where do we see God forgive our iniquities? On the cross. On the cross. Your heart will be convinced that God's word is the best compass in your life, not icky, not manipulative, not annoying. You only, your heart will only be convinced of that when you realize that they aren't just words from someone who wants to teach you something. There are words from someone who traded places with you on a cross. <laughs> there are the words of someone who said, kill me, not them. So, as we journey deeper into this poetic book of wisdom, in fact, as we continue in our service today, the most important thing you gotta ask yourself is whether or not you have seen God forgive your iniquity on the cross. All of it, every bit. It all boils down to that. If you have, then I hope that your heart here is reminded once again of how he should be the one directing your lives. His word should be the compass that tells you where to go, that dictates what's foolish and what's not. But if you haven't, if you're here today, and maybe you're still figuring Christianity out, you're still wanting to know this gospel thing, who this Jesus guy is, that's fine and we can, I'll talk to you and we can converse about it, but there comes a point if you haven't received them as Lord, if you haven't seen your iniquity washed clean on the cross, though no, no matter how pretty a book or a sermon is, you won't grow wise. Because the beginning of wisdom isn't a pretty sermon. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. I mean, I come to you most of the time with negative fear, with knowing that no matter what I do, I can't wash away all the stuff I've done in the past, not just top five foolishness of 2023, but all the foolishness of 37 years. I can't wash them away. Help us, Father, understand that in you there's forgiveness of iniquity and that is the only way we can truly 
fear, be in awe, love, revere. Make that cross clear in the hearts of those who are here today. And may we, based upon the foundation of that positive fear, grow in wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.